My name is Wayne. I'm the pastoral assistant here at City Church. If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11. Uh, we're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning. We'll be back and forth between Proverbs 12, verses 11, 14, and 24, and Proverbs 10, verses 2 through 5. Those verses are all printed for you in your worship guide, or if you prefer to follow along using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, you can find Proverbs chapter 12 on page 536, and then chapter 10 is a few pages before that on page 533. Throughout the fall, we've been going through a series on the book of Proverbs, and we've said throughout the series that the book of Proverbs is an Old Testament book, and it's considered to be wisdom literature. And what we mean when we call it wisdom literature is that the book of Proverbs was written to primarily to the audience of God's people to teach God's people what it looks like to live wisely. And so the book of Proverbs does this by covering all different topics that we come across in life. In fact, if you've been around through this series, we've already covered the topics of justice, money, temptation, speech, and planning, among others. And this morning we're going to be looking at the topic of work, as you might have gathered from the service so far. So let's take a look at these passages together as we begin to think about what it looks like for us to work wisely. Starting in chapter 12, verse 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Verse 14, from the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. And verse 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. And then chapter 10, starting with verse 2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Let's take a minute and pray together as we get into these passages. Father, I thank you for this morning, I thank you that through your word, you share with wisdom with us. And I thank you for the opportunity that we have had to learn from this book over the past several weeks. I pray that you would continue to speak to us and teach us this morning. Pray that you would help us to learn what it looks like to have a healthy, wise relationship with our work and to work wisely. I pray that you would give us a vision for what it looks like to work for your kingdom in whatever field we find ourselves this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, at one point I visited someone that I knew who had been admitted to a psychiatric facility. And I remember some of the conversation with that person, but more than that, what I remember taking away from that experience was that I walked out of that building thinking, this is where I want to work when I finish my schooling. Now, I had already been interested in psychology and I had been planning on majoring in that in college, but when I walked out of that building, the idea that I left with was, this is specifically the type of facility that I want to work in. And so over the next few years, I finished high school, went through college, and I made it into grad school for social work, still believing that that was the type of career that I wanted to go into long term. And my second and final year of grad school for social work, I ended up with a field placement in a facility just like the one that I had visited this person in years prior. I ended up with a field placement in the adolescent day program at this facility. So I was really excited because you're supposed to aim for your last field placement to be what you want to do in hopes that you might land a job there. 
And when I got into this job, it again seemed to be exactly what I was looking for. It took a little bit of time for me to adjust because it was very different than the hospice that I had worked in the year prior. But as I got into the work there, I began to really enjoy the staff that I was working with. I enjoyed working with the clients that I was meeting. And I became more and more convinced that not only did I want to work in this type of facility, but I wanted to work with adolescents specifically. So at the end of my year in this field placement, I found out that there were no openings in the adolescent program, and they weren't thinking there would be any openings anytime soon. But they were going to create a job in the child program for me if I was willing to stay and accept that job. Now, I was not excited about working with children even from the beginning, but I figured this is right next door, literally one door away from the program that I'd like to work in, so it's a good foot in the door. I'd be working for the same supervisor, and it would be a good opportunity for me to get some experience so that way whenever an, a job does open up, I can just slide right over. So I accepted the position. It did not take me very long to regret that decision. Now, for the first couple of months, I was still excited. I still had this idea that this is basically my dream job. It's just not quite with the people that I thought I would be working with. And the first couple of months, I remember being excited about it and still enjoying it. But it's also worth mentioning at this point that the first couple of months of that job were during the summertime, which is typically the slowest time in the child and adolescent programs. So eventually September rolled around, and I got a taste of what I had actually signed up for. When I took the job, my expectation was that my job was going to involve sitting down with families, having therapy sessions, and helping them through this difficult time in their lives and then teaching their children coping skills so that they would be able to avoid falling back into the same position in the future. And at times, that really was the reality of my job. But more often, what I found is that my day-to-day -day job involved dodging kicks, punches, and spit from children who were often bigger than me, because I'm not that big. So when I was working with 12-year-olds, I was generally the smaller one. Over the next few years of doing this day in and day out, I began to dread my work. I would wake up anxious each morning. Many times it would take me up to an hour to convince myself to get out of bed because I knew what I would face once I got out of bed. And most mornings I woke up hoping that I would actually be sick so I could call out without feeling guilty about it. But then when I was actually sick, I would avoid calling out because I was afraid that if I let myself miss one day, I might never go back again. I felt that I had found my dream job, and yet most days, my last thought as I walked into this building before starting my shift was something to the effect of, here I am at this God-forsaken place again. I was still working at my dream job, and after years of bumping into the brokenness of the place where I was working and the systems in that place, I allowed myself to become convinced that the brokenness that I was facing each day was too big for God to bring wholeness. I went into this job initially wanting to bring hope to people who were suffering, but instead I found myself each day feeling more and more overwhelmed and feeling more and more hopeless myself. We all bump into situations like this one, don't we? Maybe not the exact same, but there are moments in our lives where we look at our work and we feel overwhelmed. We feel that there's no way we'll ever get everything done that we're supposed to get done. Or maybe we look at our work and we think that we've oversold ourselves and we have absolutely no idea how to do this thing that we've now committed to doing. 
Or maybe we look at our work and we become convinced that our work is meaningless or that it's not as important as work that others are doing. There are moments in our life where we look at our work and we walk away feeling hopeless and helpless. But if we look at this passage this morning, what we're going to see is that God calls us to work. And not only does he call us to work, but God considers our work to be a good thing. When we hold our work in its proper context and we do our work well, not only is our work good, but it's actually a part of God's original plan for his creation. Now, before we get back into this passage, I do want to make one more quick point. Maybe as you sit here at this point, you're already wondering, how is this going to apply to me this morning? Maybe you're in a season of life where you're unable to work for some reason, or maybe you're out of work. Or maybe it's that you've chosen to stay home at this point in time, whether it's for a season or for your entire life, to care for your children and for your family instead of taking on a typical career. If you find yourself in one of those categories this morning, or maybe some other category where you're thinking a sermon on work is just not going to be applicable to you, then I want to be clear that as we talk about work this morning, we aren't just talking about careers. Now, that's certainly part of what we're talking about, but we're also primarily talking about what it looks like for us to labor together to care for creation around us. So my hope is that this morning as we look at this passage, what we're going to find together is that whether we're in a situation where we're working a typical nine to five, whether we're doing the work of staying home and caring for a community around us, or whether we're in the midst of the work of looking for work, either way, we'll discover that our work is meaningful and important to God. So with that as our context, let's look back at this passage as we think about what it looks like to have a healthy relationship with our work. I want to start off by looking again at Proverbs 12, verses 11, 14, and 24. It says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. From the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. The hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. If we begin just looking at verses 11 and 24, we see a common theme. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. In both of these verses, we see that there is a benefit to diligence in our work. God calls us to be invested in our work. When we show up to work, our goal shouldn't be to see how little work we can do while still getting paid or how long we can procrastinate before starting the next project. The writer says that by our diligence and our work, we'll have plenty of bread and we'll find ourselves in positions of ruling. But through our laziness, we prove that we lack sense and we'll be put to forced labor. Again, when I was in high school, I played soccer for two out of my four years while I was there. Now, the reason I played for two years and not for four years was because there was a rule about summer practices for the soccer team. The rule was that if you had previously been on the team the last season and you wanted to play the next season, then summer practices were mandatory. But if you had not been on the team the previous season, you could sign up in September and join the team after summer practices were already done. So in ninth grade, I signed up at the beginning of the year in September, well after summer practices were done. And... Then going into 10th grade, I decided, well, I'd rather enjoy my summer than running around in the heat all August, so I'm going to skip soccer this year. So I skipped all of the practices, 
True to what they said, I was not allowed to play soccer come September. But then going into 11th grade, I knew I was going to want to play again, but I did not share that information with anybody until September rolled around because I didn't want them to hear about it in June and tell me I had to come to summer practices. So again, in 11th grade, I signed up for soccer in September and joined the team after they had already been preparing for several months. You might not be surprised based on that story to learn that I never made it to the varsity soccer team in high school. In ninth grade, it was okay because most of my peers were on JV too. That was the expectation. But by 11th grade, the expectation was really that if you had ever played soccer before, you should be on the varsity team by that point. But I failed to meet that expectation because while my team was showing up for practices for several hours a day, running around, getting themselves into shape, I was sitting at home doing whatever it was that I felt like doing that summer. And that may have involved some physical activity here and there, but it was nowhere near as much as the rest of the team was doing throughout the three months of summer vacation. So when I joined them in September, it was very obvious where I belonged, and the answer was not anywhere on the varsity team. I mean, I could sort of keep up when I was practicing with the rest of the JV team, but any time we had to play against the varsity team, there was no comparison. I chose not to invest in the work that needed to be done, and I spent the rest of the season proving to my teammates that I lacked sense. It's also worth noting that the team, the varsity team that I did not make, won one game that season. So the bar that I couldn't make it over was not especially high, but due to my lack of preparation, I still failed to meet that expectation. When we try to avoid investing in our work, we tend to find ourselves paying for it in the long run. We find that our work is not up to the quality that it needs to be. We find ourselves being passed by for better job opportunities or for promotions. We may even find that when we look back at the work that we've done, we feel embarrassed about our own work. God calls us to invest in our work, and then if we look at verse 14, we see that the work of a man's hand comes back to him. Now that's either really good news or really bad news for us. And which it, which it is depends on our character and the nature of our work. The writer here is basically saying that we will reap what we sow. If we invest in our work and we do our work well and honestly, then we should expect to receive good rewards from our work. But if we avoid doing good work and we cut corners, then we should expect the same outcome from our rewards. How we do our work matters to God. And before we move on, I want to look at one more thing on the topic of investing in our work. Proverbs 10:22 is not printed in your worship guide, but it does make an important point on the topic of investing in our work. If you look at the NIV version of the Bible, it translates it to say, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. There's a difference between investing in our work and painful toiling. God calls us to invest in our work. He calls us to work hard. He calls us to work honestly and to do good work, but he does not call us to toil painfully. Tim and Kathy Keller wrote a devotion on the book of Proverbs, and in one of their devotions, they focus in on this verse. Here's what they say about it. Painful toil connotes the life-crushing sorrow of overwork of the craving for power and wealth that comes from selfish wickedness. God condemns self-wounding labor. The wise person does not do painful over overwork, but simply works hard and lets the blessing of the Lord determine how wealthy the work makes them. 
God condemns self-wounding labor. We're called to invest in our work, but we're not called to be enslaved to our work. There's a difference between doing good work, caring about the work that we do, investing in our work, and giving everything for our work. Part of having a healthy relationship with our work is knowing when it's time to step away from that work and set it down for a moment. When, we're find, when we find ourselves constantly obsessing over our work and prioritizing it over all else, if we find ourselves neglecting our faith and our family for our work, then we've moved away from investing in our work and we've moved into painful toil and self-wounding labor. God doesn't call us to spend our lives chasing promotions and raises. God calls us to invest in our work and then trust that he will provide the good reward for our work. Let's now take a look at Proverbs 10, verses 2 through 5. It says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Again, in verse 4, we see this theme of diligence. But then if we look at verse 5, we see that we're called to prepare for our work. The writer says, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. We're called to be organized in our work so that we're doing what is important at the proper times. Harvest time is the time for gathering, and if we sleep through it, we can't go back and make up for it later. It's too late. There is value for planning well for our work. One of the more difficult parts of the transition from the job I was talking about earlier to the jobs that I have now was learning how to plan well for these new jobs. In my previous job, there was some amount of planning that needed to be done every day, but for the most part, it was a preset checklist that just needed to be done by the end of each day. So when I transitioned out of that job into a couple of jobs that changed more from one day to the next, I struggled to figure out what I should be doing each day initially. In fact, there are still times where I get into the middle of my week and I realize that I need to step back and plan for what I'm going to do instead of just doing the first thing that comes to mind. When I fail to plan ahead of time, what I often find myself doing is I focus on what feels most urgent to me, sometimes at the expense of what actually was most important, or I focus on doing what seems most important, but I miss things that were really urgent and needed to be done quickly. When I'm not intentional about my planning, I find that I miss things in my work. And so I've gotten into this routine now where at the beginning of my week, I take a few moments to sit down and prioritize what I need to do by the end of the week. And then I set deadlines for myself, which day each thing needs to be done. And when I'm intentional about planning out my week, what I find most of the time is that I actually can finish everything by the end of the week. But there are still times where, for whatever reason, I miss that initial opportunity to plan. And without fail, most, most of the time, I find myself, by the middle of the week, seeing things piling up around me, feeling more and more anxious, and having no clue what the next thing is that I should be getting done. And then I have to stop while I'm feeling stressed, take a step back, and figure out what I should be prioritizing. Just because we're investing in our work and working hard does not mean that we're exercising wisdom and prioritizing different tasks. We're called to be prudent in our preparation for our work so that we end up doing the important things when they need to be done. And the importance of planning for our work can also apply to planning what we will do, do for work. 
Look again at Proverbs 12, verse 24. It says, The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. The writer here is saying that it's important for us to take initiative to find work that we choose. And if we don't do that, then we'll eventually find ourselves doing work that we're forced to do instead. There's wisdom in being intentional about choosing what work we want to do. Finding work that we want instead of trying to avoid work or waiting for work to come to us. During the week, I do some work as an outpatient counselor, and I see this play out often with my clients who are just about to turn 18 or recently have turned 18. I've seen more than one client who either chose not to finish high school or didn't come up with any plan for after they finished high school, and so now they find themselves in a position where they have no clue what they want to do, or they know what they want to do, but they're not qualified to do it, and they don't want to do the work of becoming qualified to do it. And each time I work with someone like that, I see the options that they have slowly falling away as they choose to keep debating about what they want to do instead of taking action to actually do something. Many of them end up taking the first job that they're offered in order to avoid being kicked out of their home as their parents grow more and more frustrated at their lack of action. And then, even once they have this job, they often struggle to think about the long-term plans. Sometimes they just choose not to even put the effort into thinking about long-term plans. Recently, I was in the middle of a conversation like this with a client and his family, and during the conversation, he said to his parents, who are providing everything for him right now, I'm an adult, I can do what I want. You can imagine how that went over with the parents who are providing everything for him right now. His options just got more limited just by making that statement in their presence because they suddenly became even more frustrated with his lack of action and they became more firm in their resolve that now is the time for you to do something and make a decision. We see in this proverb that when we plan for our work, we gain reward, but when we fail to plan, we end up finding ourselves forced to do work that we don't want to. God calls us to invest in our work and he calls us to prepare for our work and if we look again at chapter 12, verses 11, 14, and 24, we'll see that there's a bigger purpose for us in our work. It says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. The writer here is giving us a picture of what it looks like when we do our work well. We see that whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good. The work of a man's hand comes back to him, and the hand of the diligent will rule. Through our diligence, we find abundance, satisfaction, reward, and authority. Through our work, we find flourishing. So what does it look like for us to find flourishing through our work? Well, it may mean changing the way that we think and talk about our work. I'll admit that at times I'm guilty of focusing on my complaints about work and talking about work like it's just one big burden that gets in the way of all of the really important things I'd rather be doing. But what if we shifted our focus of our conversation instead to the joy of working? We just prayed this morning in our confession of sin that God would help us to rediscover work's delight. So how might we talk about our work if we actually did rediscover work's delight? How might we talk about our work if we took pride and found enjoyment in our labor? 
There was a professor at my seminary who talked about his wife who had chosen to stay home with their children while they were young. And he said that when people asked her what she did, she didn't say, oh, I stay at home with my children. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Instead, this was her response. I am socializing two homo sapiens in the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the beginning of creation. And what do you do? We flourish when we take pride in our work and when we have a vision for what our work is contributing. But flourishing through our work may also mean changing the way that we do our work. I want to draw your attention for a moment to a quote that's in the front of the worship guide from Dorothy Sayers. When I first found this quote earlier in the week, I texted Jason and told him that I was just going to stand up, read this quote for my sermon, and sit back down because I like it that much. So you can take a minute and turn there. Here's what she says. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work to become separate departments and is astonished to find that, as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. But is it astonishing? How can one remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not, to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. No crooked tables or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, did anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. If we want to know what it looks like to find flourishing through our work, we should focus on doing work that we can be proud of. God wants us to take pride in work that is well done because work that is well done reminds us of God's good work and it reflects the character of God as our good creator. No matter what field we find ourselves in at this moment, our work has value in bringing the kingdom of God here to earth. So God calls us to invest in our work, and he calls us to prepare for our work, and then he calls us to flourish through our work. But maybe as you hear all this this morning, you find yourself struggling with these ideas. Maybe you think about all this and you realize that you have invested in your work. You have planned well for your work. You've prepared for your work, and you even do work that you're proud of, and you continue to find that you are not flourishing. Maybe you sit here this morning thinking that you have worked the land, and yet you still continuously lack bread. And so each day you find yourself wondering whether you'll have enough money to pay the bills again this week. Or maybe what you've found is that the fruit of your hard labor continuously ends up in your boss's hand, or in a coworker's hand instead of your own. Maybe you've invested deeply in your work, but instead of finding yourself in a position of ruling, you find that you're still doing work that you're forced to do. So maybe you hear what Proverbs has to say about work, and you're convinced that it's wrong because you've spent your entire lifetime working, and you haven't seen these promised results. Well, if that's where you are this morning, then it's important for us to take a moment to acknowledge something. We mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that Proverbs is wisdom literature, and so wisdom literature is 
literature that was written to help us learn what it looks like to live wisely. But wisdom literature is also often rooted in creation. The principles in the book of Proverbs teach us about justice, about the way that things should go if things are the way that they're supposed to be. But the reality that we live in right now is that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. In the beginning, God did the work of creating people, places, and things to be glorious and whole. But things did not remain whole. We chose to sin against God. We chose to do things our own way, to disobey his good commands. And by doing so, we invited brokenness into the world around us. And so now we find ourselves continually bumping into evidence that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We find that people who avoid work are continually prospering around us. We find that people who work dishonestly consistently seem to get ahead. We find that the reward for our hard labor is recognition for someone else while we continue to painfully toil. This is not the way that things were meant to be. But the good news is that God did not stop working after creation. God continues to work to make all things new, and he's already done the work of defeating sin and death by sending Jesus, his son, here to earth to live among us, showing us what it looks like to work to bring restoration to the world around us, and then to die on the cross paying the price for our sin, and to raise again to life, defeating the power of sin and death. Through Jesus' resurrection, we are invited to join in his work to bring renewal to the creation around us. Our work has meaning because through our work, we contribute to God's plan to make all things new again. And so just as wisdom literature is rooted in creation, our work is also rooted in creation. When we do good work, it reflects the character of our Father in heaven, who from the very beginning of the biblical narrative has his hands in the dust, doing good work to create us as his image bearers. Tim and Kathy Keller say that because we were created in our creator's image, there is nothing more humanizing than good work. We are never more fully the image bearers we were created to be than when we're doing good work. So as we conclude this morning, I want to come back to that story I started off with about my job at the psychiatric facility. If you remember, where I left off was mentioning that my final thoughts as I walked in most mornings was something to the effect of, here I am at this God-forsaken place again. And that was my final thought walking into that building for quite a while. But while I was still at that job, 10th Avenue North, who was one of my favorite bands, released a song called All the Earth is Holy Ground. And so as I was working there, I started listening to this new album and listening to this new song in particular, and it began to challenge that thought for me. So each time I would walk up to this facility and think of it as a God-forsaken place, it was followed up by being challenged as I remembered these lyrics. They sing, All the earth is holy ground, every single breath, every single sound. I can feel you with me now. All the earth is holy ground. I don't believe in secular things, just a world waiting to be redeemed. I was lost, but I was found. Now all the earth is holy ground. Oh, what a mystery, your life and breath alive inside of me. Unworthy to be your son, but somehow you reached down and made me your own. Your mercy has remade this house I burned down to the grave. Your spirit filled my lungs. Now wherever I go, I bring the kingdom come. Let my song resound. All the earth is holy ground. Because of Jesus, we're invited 
to bring the kingdom of God with us wherever we go. Through our work, we get to join with God in his work of making all things new again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to be uninvolved bystanders in your work to make all things new, but that you invite, to, you invite us to join with you in that work. We thank you that you have given us the opportunity to work alongside you. And I pray that you would help us to rediscover the joy of that opportunity, that when we go to our jobs or we, when we do work around our homes, even as we sit down to look for work, that we would see how you're using us to bring about renewal and redemption to the world around us. I pray that you would give us a vision for how the work that we're doing matters. That you would help us to stop focusing on our grumbles and our complaints, but instead to focus on how you are making everything around us more beautiful and more whole through the labor of our hands. Father, I pray that you would nourish us, that you would help us to flourish, that you would give us opportunities to see the work that you're doing through our hands so that we would be encouraged to work harder. I pray that you would help us to encourage each other as we speak to each other about work. I pray that through our work, you would shape us more into the people that you created us to be, that you would help us to reflect your image more fully as your image bearers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.